Good morning, Chapel Hill. Isn't that a remarkable truth, remarkable affirmation that we are the sons and daughters of God? Not sons and daughters of this world, not even first and foremost sons and daughters of our earthly parents. We are sons and daughters of God. What a beautiful reality that is. All right, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you are going to need one once again because that's what we do. So, if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in as we dive back into the Word of God this morning. Um, And if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you do not currently have a Bible of your own, take it with you. And church, always remember if you know someone that doesn't have a Bible, grab one that we have here and give it to them. Um, We want to make the Word of God available to everybody. Because that's what he intended it for. Um, I have uh, this great excitement about today's message. We're going to get back into the book of John. Uh, and I was reminded yesterday of, of something, experienced yesterday, um, something that reminded me of John and made me think of John this morning. Um, and the fact that we've talked about how young he was. And the fact that God called him, Jesus called him to walk with him at such a young age. And uh, yesterday... I was at a rise with the guys, uh, with my sons, and um, we, uh, we got there, and <clears throat> honestly, we were a little bit disappointed, because Adam Thielen wasn't on the calendar anymore. He wasn't on the list there. We are like, oh, that's too bad. We were really looking forward to hearing Adam Thielen, um, and instead, this guy named Bill Butters gets up, and Bill is a former um, Minnesota North Star player from way back in the day. Um, Bill Butters was known as a fighter. Uh, He was brought into the league because he could fight. And when he was in high school, a referee, um, (laughs) who happened to turn out to be very, very famous, um, noticed him and asked him if he would be interested in playing college hockey. And he came to the U of M, and um, Herb Brooks was the one who recognized him. Um, And he went on to have this career, and he joined the North Stars, and he played until he was 30 years of age. And he he was a fighter. He claims to have been in 102 fights and only won two of them. And um, he, <laughs> he has, he has the, the worst self-esteem possible when it comes to a pro hockey player. All he talked about was what a terrible player he was and how it was ridiculous that he was a pro hockey player because he was lousy at it. He was just a rotten hockey player. Um, then he began to unpack a little bit of his story and he started talking about his upbringing and what he went through with um, with life at home and all these things, and it was rough. It was rough. Um, you couldn't see God in the story, but God was there. And um, he came to the, the point where he was 30 years old in his career, and he was, he was called into the office of the North Stars, and he was, he was let go. He was told, you're done. Um, he ended up unwillingly going to a hockey camp that summer, that following summer. It was a Christian hockey camp. He was the only non-Christian at camp And he talked about how God used a little pack of 12-year-old boys to lead him to the Lord. Absolutely remarkable story. A guy who went from hating Christians and hating the church to having his heart broken by God. And it was 12-year-old boys that led him there. And it just reminded me of John and the fact that when he met Jesus and began to walk with Jesus, he was probably about 12 years old. Um, Just an amazing account of how God uses all of us, all of us, for his purposes. All right, before we get into our passage today, um, let me try to settle the confusion about today, because this may catch some of you off guard, and I want to make sure that we're clear on this. Um, This is Palm Sunday around the world. 
Churches all over the planet are going to be celebrating Jesus as king and remembering his arrival in Jerusalem and how so many people hailed him as king at that point. And there are going to be lots of palm branches on display and they're going to sing songs that have the word Hosanna in them. But not us. Um, that's not our focus today. We've been working our way through the book of John for a year now and according to the way John is written, we passed Palm Sunday quite a while ago. Remember that? And now here we are, and Palm Sunday's long gone. That's a distant memory. The last two Sundays, we looked at, at Jesus' arrival in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, where he was betrayed, arrested, and led away to the high priest. And then last week, Peter pointed us to Jesus' interactions with Pilate. And today, we move on to the incredible account of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. And personally, as your pastor, I am glad things that worked out this way. I'm glad they did. I, I don't think we give enough attention to what happened around the death of Jesus. We tend to save this passage for a Good Friday service. And then it might get a quick review on Resurrection Sunday. Today we get to just soak up this story. And we'll stick to John's account. There are some well-known parts in this story that John doesn't include in his book. They're elsewhere in the, Bible, in the, in the Gospels in the Bible. But he wrote what he wrote for a reason, so we're going to stick with John. Um, there's a lot there. So I want to start by reading the story. Turn to John chapter 19 and verse 17. John 19, verse 17. Um, Jesus' interaction with Pilate had just ended. Pilate, after trying to figure Jesus out, has turned him over to be crucified. Pilate was afraid of what the Jews could do if he didn't meet their demand to put Jesus to death. But Pilate never declared Jesus guilty of any crime or deserving crucifixion. The Jewish leaders, meanwhile, were now so far down the wrong road that they declared to Pilate that they have no king but Caesar, which is a blatant lie and an insult to God. And Jesus has been beaten with a whip and we can see in the book of John that, that John doesn't go into detail about Jesus' suffering. He simply says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And later he'll, he'll write, there they crucified him. That's where we're going today. So here's John chapter 19, verses 17 through 42. Take a deep breath. This is hard to read. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things Joseph of Arimathea was, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Will you pray with me for just a minute? Father, you've given us this account of what happened to Jesus at this moment in history. At the most significant moment in all of history. And so I come to you this morning on behalf of this church asking, Lord, that that there would be no thought in us that, oh, I've read this before. I know this story. But that you would lead us to a place where your truth sinks deeper than it ever has in our hearts. That the incredible story of Jesus being crucified and buried will mean more to us when we walk out these doors than it ever has in our lives. 
Because this, for us, meant so much. And I thank you for all that it meant. So guide us now, Lord, to see it. To receive it. To absorb it. To believe it. To stand on it. And to praise you for it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for the next few minutes, um, I want to walk us through a closer look at this passage. For me personally, if I can understand better what's happening in what I'm reading, it becomes more real for me. If it becomes more real, it sinks in deeper and not just from an informational perspective. It doesn't just make it more interesting. It makes it more influential. So that's why I'm going to share this information and perspective with you this morning. Then we're going to look at the issue of prophecy. Prophecy plays a critical role in what happened here. And then we'll wrap it up by considering what this means, what impact this can have on us. So starting at the beginning of our passage and working our way through, let's add to what we know and see here. And maybe you already know all of this. That's fine. Maybe this is all new. Whatever the case, this is John's account of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. And so it's well worth the look. This is the event that set me free. This is the event that made it possible for me to be reunited with my creator. This means everything to me. And I was almost embarrassed by the amount of emotion that came out as I prepared for this. I had a crazy week. I kept trying to sit down and get ready for this. And every time I did, I'd get about 10 minutes in and there'd be some other interruption. There's another snake in the building or something like that. There's something going on. Something would have to be dealt with. Some fire would have to be put out. And I'd go deal with that. And then I'd come back and I'd have another 10 minutes. But within that 10 minutes, I'm in tears and I'm a mess. And I'm going, I hope somebody doesn't walk in right now. This means so much. So having been handed over to be crucified, John writes that the soldiers led Jesus out. They led him out. That meant out of the city. Executions were held outside the city, but in places where people passed by all the time and could see it. It was standard procedure for criminals to carry the crossbeam from the cross that they were about to die on. And I'll say more about this when we get to the prophecy piece. They led him to the place of the skull. In Aramaic, the name For the place is Golgotha. In Latin, it was called Calvary, which is what we see in some of the old hymns. I think because nothing rhymes with Golgotha. So it's Calgary Calvary in the hymns, right? (laughs) The exact location of this place is not certain. They don't know for sure. There's speculation about this place that's coming up on the screen right now. This one here. And I like the older picture of it because it was less developed then than it is now when they took this picture. Um, You can see why they think it may have been this place, the place of the skull, but nobody's certain. It's not for sure. I don't think we need to know. We are certain that crucifixion took place outside of Jerusalem at that time. That's been confirmed in many, many ways. Crucifixion was a horrible, humiliating form of execution. It was reserved for slaves, bandits, prisoners of war, and insurrectionists. No Roman citizen could legally be crucified because it was so awful. 
Typically, the criminal hung there alive for days, and then the dead bodies stayed there to be eaten by the birds. Those who were crucified would eventually die from exhaustion, dehydration, blood loss, shock, suffocation. If they could not physically support themselves in that position anymore, they'd hang from their arms and suffocate as their ribs pressed in on their lungs. Only the Romans were permitted to crucify people, and so Jesus had to be put to death by the Romans one way or another. The Jews, only when permitted by the Romans, could execute by stoning. That would involve bringing someone down, not lifting someone up like crucifixion did. Remember Jesus talking about being lifted up? The execution squad was usually made up of four soldiers under the command of a centurion, The criminal's clothing was very commonly divided between the four soldiers, so this was not unusual when it happened here to Jesus. Two thieves were also crucified with Jesus. The two could possibly have been accomplices of Barabbas, the person that the Jewish leaders leaders said to release instead of Jesus. Let's talk about the sign that was posted above Jesus' head. The sign was customary as well. As the criminal would carry his crossbeam through the streets on the way to the place of execution, someone would walk in front of them with a sign stating what their crime was. But Jesus had committed no crime, so no one went before him to announce what he had done. Instead, possibly out of spite for the Jews, possibly for another reason, Pilate had a sign made and attached to Jesus' cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews true whether that was his intent or not an insult to the jewish leaders in at least two ways they refused to believe that jesus was their king so this would bother them and the mention of jesus nazarene origin was there as well nazareth as we learned a while ago was the butt of many jokes for most jews yet pilate stood by what he had written and posted He had it written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so the majority, if not all of those who passed by, would be able to read it and understand what it said. There were most likely four women at the cross with Jesus when he was crucified. Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. Only John mentions that. Salome, Mary's sister, was there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. We don't know a lot about her. She was the other Mary at the tomb with Mary Magdalene. Uh, that comes from Matthew's account, by the way. And Mary Magdalene was also there. She's the Mary who Jesus had delivered from seven demons. So that's who was there. And one man was there, John. Now pause for a second. We have pause music, that's great. (laughs) Think about this. I've been considering something. Um, My head has been consumed with how evident Jesus' authority was in all of this, the whole Easter story. He chose his path. He chose the circumstances. He chose the people. And so consider John again. Jesus had determined that he would face the high priest and his son, Caiaphas. Annas, the high priest, we talked about him, and now the current high priest, Caiaphas. Jesus had also determined that the world would have an account of what happened even behind closed doors in the courtyard of the high priest. 
John was accepted there. John would then go with Jesus from there to the cross. John had full access to all this so that we could hear about it. All of it from John's perspective. He was a witness. And now something else happens with John. Jesus, hanging from the cross in all kinds of physical pain, has the foresight and compassion to ensure that his mother, Mary, is taken care of. And so he entrusts John with Mary and Mary with the teenager, John. Consider once again just how much this teenager, John, goes through in his time with Jesus. It's remarkable. And note that this implies that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is no longer alive. Mary needed somewhere to go. She needed someone to take care of her. Sour wine was offered to Jesus. He takes it this time, but the wine that had previously been offered to him, he refused. That first one had something called gall in it, which was meant to deaden the pain that he was experiencing. And Jesus refused it. He wouldn't accept it. He would face the pain and the full wrath of his father without assistance, without anything to deaden the pain. And then Jesus says, it is finished. I've read and heard these words a hundred times or more. And this time they mean more to me than they ever have, and here's why. First of all, this came right before Jesus died. Last words, that's so beautifully confusing. Because Jesus had been on the cross for about six hours. Criminals usually hung there for a few days before dying. Why did Jesus die so quickly? Well, maybe that's not the point. Maybe something else is going on here. And so I stopped trying to explain this away by saying that Jesus must have suffered more than the others. There's a second factor in this. According to what we see written in Greek at this point, it appears quite obvious in that language that Jesus said this, said it is finished in a loud voice. Actually, Jesus shouted these words. It is finished. With strength and power, Jesus declared in a loud voice that it is finished. And then he died. Now think about this. That's not how a person on the brink of death acts. I don't believe that Jesus died because his body couldn't handle any more pain. I don't believe that death finally overcame him in that moment. This wasn't Jesus simply reaching his limit of what he could take. His heart, his weary heart just giving out. That doesn't make sense. Jesus Christ had absolute authority in all these things that were taking place. And that included this thing, death. He had authority in this. Jesus was not overcome. He was not beaten by death. I believe that in this moment, Jesus deliberately and intentionally stepped into the darkness that is death. He moved under his own power from life to death. And no one else has ever done this. 
There's a degree to which people die shortly after giving up. That's not what this was. In strength and control, Jesus chose to lay his life down. This was nothing short of an aggressive step in God's plan. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was a declaration of victory. Something had been accomplished. We'll look at that next. And and now the next thing was scheduled to happen. The next thing was Jesus crossing the line deliberately from life to death. Impossible, right? Not one of us can simply decide that we're going to die right now and just do it. Only Jesus could. The cross did not take Jesus' life. The whips did not take Jesus' life. The Jews did not take Jesus' life. The Romans did not take Jesus' life. Jesus deliberately, willfully laid his life down in that moment so that he could enter into the darkness that is death. And there he stripped Satan and death of their authority. In John 10, 18, we heard Jesus saying this. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In full authority, Jesus left life and entered into death, and there defeated death, stripping it of its hold on us. By his terms, at his time, Under his power. All authority had been given to Jesus. Here he executed that authority. Jesus was not overcome by death. He entered death of his own free will. And he won. When Jesus shouted, it is finished. What was he referring to? There are several things in play here. His mission had been accomplished. Redemption had been accomplished. Sin was now atoned for. Satan's power, death, that power was taken away. The law had been satisfied. God's wrath had been appeased. And every prophecy had been fulfilled. And we'll get there. Jesus then committed his spirit into his father's hands. He gave God his spirit. And he ended his life. He didn't give in to anything short of God's will. He laid his life down in trusting his eternal spirit to his father. It was late on a Friday afternoon and the Jews were worried about the bodies of those who had been crucified hanging there during the Sabbath. So they wanted the criminals dead. That Sabbath was referred to as a high Sabbath or a high day because it was a Passover Sabbath. Criminals hanging there during Passover could defile the day. They were more worried about correctly following Mosaic law than they were about crucifying the Son of God. So they wanted the legs of the criminals broken to speed up their death. That way they couldn't support themselves and breathe freely and they'd die quicker. They would suffocate The breaking was done with an iron mallet. 
And when the soldiers saw that Jesus was already dead, they confirmed, they confirmed that by stabbing him in the side with a spear instead. John confirmed what he saw. His testimony is true. Jesus was dead. Rather than seeing Jesus' body left for the birds to devour, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich, godly follower of Jesus, asked Pilate for his body. He was afraid of the Jews with reason, but not enough to stop him from honoring the body of Jesus Christ. Joseph and Nicodemus were both members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, so they in particular had reason to be afraid of what could happen to them. But here the two of them step up. They brought 100 pounds, the equivalent today of about 75 pounds of spices for Jesus' burial. That amount would have been enough for a king or a very prominent person. They brought it fittingly for Jesus. Myrrh and aloe were fragrant powders that would be distributed inside Jesus' burial cloths and on the outside as well. And their purpose was to cover up the smell of the decaying body. Having a tomb nearby was very convenient given the limited time they had to prepare and bury the body. And according to prophecy, Jesus was to rise on the third day. And that meant according to the way the Jews counted days, he had to be buried Friday. Friday was the first day, full or not, even a partial day was considered the first day. Saturday was the second. Sunday, even part of it was the third day. So Jesus was buried before Friday ended. All according to plan. Not the Jews' plan. Not the Romans' plan. God's plan. Now we could stop here and, and be blessed. But I really think we should briefly look at what happened that also affirmed that Christ's authority was there in all of this. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Words and pictures that had been spoken and written centuries and even millennia before then were coming to pass. So let me share some of those with you. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 700 years before Jesus came to rescue us, the prophet spoke of his willing obedience to the Father's plan. And when they led him out to be crucified, he didn't fight it. All the way, he didn't fight it. It was time for God's plan to be fulfilled. Genesis 22, 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. The wood. Like Isaac carrying the wood upon which he'd be sacrificed, Jesus carried his cross. Exodus twenty nine fourteen, talking about sacrifice. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Exodus was written in the 13th century B.C., God established that sacrifices were to be made outside the camp, outside the city, just like it was in Jesus' case when he was crucified. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man 
be lifted up. John connected the time of Moses to the time of Christ. Psalm 22, verses 14 to 18. Listen to David. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? David had no understanding of crucifixion whatsoever when he wrote these words about a thousand years before Jesus. No one was crucified back then. Look at the picture we get. Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus hung on the cross with a criminal on either side, numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sin of of many. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Exodus 12, verse 46. Regarding the Passover meal, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. That was written in 518 B.C. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. When Jesus said, it is finished, those words followed the fulfillment of the prophecy that he, that he would say, I thirst. John tracked this when he wrote his book. The fulfillment of the scriptures, the prophecy was finished. So much more was fulfilled as well, including the words of Jesus himself. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Is there any greater demonstration of love than this? Jesus left heaven He left all he had ever known. He left the security of being with his father. He left the perfection of heaven. He let go and he came to be with us. He came to be one of us. He came to take our place. And to be God's sacrifice for sin.
for the world. Jesus came to fulfill the plan that God had designed from the beginning of time to rescue his creation, to set us free. For this, isn't he worthy of our praise? This coming weekend, I would strongly encourage you to be here on Friday night and on Sunday morning. Um, on Friday evening, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, he can just pull this out and preach it again. Um, now, Friday evening, we're going to focus ourselves on the word forgiveness. Come and spend some time with us on Friday evening. On Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, two services, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, they're the same, they're going to be the same services. And in between, a time for our family to celebrate together, to fellowship together. There will be breakfast out here in the lobby. You can enjoy that time just interacting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, one of the things that I want you to do is pray for this coming weekend. We'll have a lot of visitors in this building as usual. Um, maybe even some people that you invite. Remember that you have that invitation in your bulletin. There are more in the back corner there. Uh, invite somebody. Invite somebody. Don't you think they need to hear this message? Be praying, be praying that the right people, that God brings the right people here to hear hope and forgiveness, to hear grace. Because this world needs it. And God sent his son to come and by his authority, under his authority, by his will, by his power, lay his life down willingly, obediently, intentionally and walk into the darkness that is death and then walk right back out of it victorious so that you and I can live forever. Be praying for this coming weekend. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now. We're going to end our time together in praise, worshiping the Lamb, worshiping Jesus for who he is, praising God for what he did for us in sending his son, thanking God that Jesus did step from life into death and defeat the darkness for us on his own time, by his own will, under his own power and authority. We pray with me as they come. And as we go before God in silence here, with your eyes closed, blocking out all the other distractions, just take a moment right now, just in the quietness of your heart and your mind, to respond to God for what we just looked at, to respond to God because of the cross. To respond because Jesus fulfilled all prophecy. 
the plan that God had spoken to this world for thousands of years came to pass exactly as God planned it. And for your sake, Jesus took his place on the sacrificial altar, laid his life down, and faced the wrath of God. We can't possibly understand what it was like for Jesus to have his father turn his back on him. To have the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. Try for a second to just imagine all of the sin throughout all history being dealt with in that one moment when God poured out his wrath on his son. This was not just about the physical pain. There was so much more that happened. So church, go to God right now. Tell him thanks. You praise him personally for what he did for you. This is no small thing. This is no creed, no doctrine. This is God. Go to him now. Father, I do praise you for what you've done. I praise you for fulfilling your plan in your way at your time by your power. I praise you that Jesus had full authority, that you gave him all authority so that when it was time for him to lay his life down, he laid it down. And he walked into darkness. He walked into death and overcame it for my sake, for our sake. And for your sake. Because you loved us so much that you wanted to bring us back to you. And God, we are blown away that you would do that for us. Open our eyes to see more clearly what happened on that cross see more clearly what happened in that tomb, to see more clearly what happened when that tomb was discovered to be empty. God, I want that to mean more to me right now than it ever has before. Because I know I don't get all of it. I can't fully grasp it. I get so distracted all of the time that I forget that this is my daily reality. It's the cross. So God, help us with that. Make it our reality. Father, we praise you for what you've done. We praise you for being a loving God who saw his world in trouble, who had a plan from the start, who fulfilled that plan at exactly the right time in history down to the second. And we praise you that one day that plan will come to its fullest fulfillment when Jesus Christ returns and will be with you forever. God, haste that day. Jesus, come back. In the meantime,
God, bring us to the point where we can't help but share this, this good news with the world around us. I pray for this congregation right here that it would mean more and more to them right now. I pray for the weekend coming up. You know who's going to be here. I ask that you would guide us to the point of creating a place where you can do your work. Thank you for what you've done today, what you're going to do in the week ahead. Keep us, keep yourself close to our minds and our minds close to you in the days ahead. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.